The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 15 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC15. This is Secret Church 15, Episode 9. Issues in the culture, liberty and persecution. Uh, Let me give you a little setup here. Imagine you're a follower of Christ. You believe the Bible. Your driving desire is to love God, to love others. You happen to be a professional photographer. One day in your community, somebody contacts you about their upcoming event. And she says, my female partner and I are celebrating our commitment to one another in a formal ceremony, and we want you to photograph it. So immediately your mind starts racing. What should I say, you think? Well, you begin processing your personal convictions. On one hand, you want to serve the community, including people, all kinds of different types of people. And you've built a business on using your talents to bless people just like the woman who's making this request. At the same time, your love for others is a subset of your love for God. And you believe God has designed marriage as the union of a man and a woman for the demonstration of his character, display of his gospel, and the world. As a result, you have a hard time conceiving how you're going to participate at all in the celebration of something that you're convinced God condemns. And you can't escape the thought that your participation in that would violate your conscience. Even more important, in your heart, you can't avoid a conviction that your participation would dishonor God. So in speaking to this woman, you politely decline. And as you do, you find yourself resting in the free exercise of religion that's been granted to you in your country until you're surprised to discover that you're sued for your decision. And then imagine your surprise when you learn that the government on which you were leaning for the free exercise of religion tells you that the law requires you to compromise your conviction. Not an imaginary scenario for Elaine Huguenin, the co-owner of Elaine Photography in Albuquerque, New Mexico. When asked to photograph a commitment ceremony between two women, Huguenin politely said she doesn't photograph those ceremonies. Despite finding another cheaper photographer for that ceremony, the person filed a complaint with the New Mexico Civil Rights Commission claiming that Elaine Photography was guilty of discrimination and the court ruled against Elaine Photography, ordering them to pay a large penalty. Became all the more, the case became all the more concerning when it eventually went to the New Mexico Supreme Court, which upheld the ruling against Elaine Photography, and in a unanimous verdict, the justices ruled, quote unquote, that when Elaine Photography refused to photograph a same sex commitment ceremony, it violated the New Mexico Human Rights Act in the same way as if it had refused to photograph a wedding between people of different races. Obviously, we've talked about that fundamental flaw, equating ethnic identity with sexual activity. But even more than that, listen to the alarming reason that was given for this, again, unanimous ruling. These quotes, one justice wrote that Elaine Huguenin and her husband are compelled by law to compromise the very religious beliefs that inspire their lives. He went on to say, the Huguenins are free to think, to say, to believe as they wish. They may pray to the God of their choice and follow those commandments and their personal lives wherever they lead. But, the court went on to say, in the smaller, more focused world of the marketplace of commerce, of public accommodation, the Huguenins have to channel their conduct, not their beliefs, so as to leave space for other Americans who believe something different. This, the court said, is the price of citizenship in our country. So get this, the highest court in the state of New Mexico ruled that while the Huguenins are free to exalt God in the church they attend, they're not free to express, express their beliefs in the, belie- in the business they own. So they're free to practice their faith in private for a couple of hours at the start of a week, but they're forced to deny their faith in public for for multiple hours every other day of the week. In the end, Elaine Huguenin is compelled by government to violate her conscience and dishonor her creator as a citizen in her culture. 
Now, thankfully, months later, about a year ago, Supreme Court in our country ruled on a similar case, case with Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood, and that one in a five to four ruling said that the government can't force closely held corporations to violate their religious beliefs. But here's the deal, and my name is not to be an alarmist, but the more I've thought about this issue, the more I'm convinced we need to be alarmed. By the narrowest of possible margins, the Supreme Court ruled that we have freedom to apply religious convictions in our everyday lives and leadership. And if one vote had been different, that freedom would have been taken away by our government. And this is not just about owners of major corporations or photographers for that matter. This is about people in all sorts of professions, without question, more and more, employees and employers, doctors and pharmacists, teachers and administrators, insurers and investors, ministers, ministries, facing governmental mandates to provide goods and services that may contradict personal convictions. So we've got to think about how the gospel relates to religious liberty. First Peter 2, look at this passage. This is the word of God. Be subject to the Lord's sake, for, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So, this text, actually written to a group of Christians who were experiencing persecution in first century Rome, wondering how do we respond to the Roman government around us? So a crisis government, how do they respond to it? Should they ignore it? Should they disregard the government? Should they fight the government? Should they just be quiet and do whatever the government says? And here's what the Bible teaches. Number one, as Christians, we are submissive citizens of a government. We're submissive citizens of a government. We subject ourselves willingly to the government around us, which is pretty astonishing command when you realize what kind of government was happening here in the first century? Yet Emperor Claudius, or maybe even Nero, both of whom were completely ungodly, setting themselves up as, as gods. Nero was persecuting and killing Christians. And Peter says, be subject to the emperor as supreme and to governors sent by him and do this for the Lord's sake, for this is the will of God, which is exactly what Jesus had said down in Matthew 20, 22, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So Jesus is not teaching that his followers should disregard government. Government is there for a reason. Let every person, Romans 13, 1, be subject to the govern, governing authorities. So we touched on this a little bit earlier when we were talking about abortion. Government is given by God for the restraint of evil and for the promotion of good. So we submit to government as a rightful authority set up by God for those purposes. Then the Bible goes on to say, second truth, we're free servants of God. Free servants. So live as people who are free, 1 Peter 2, 16. He's not talking about political freedom there. He's talking about spiritual freedom. And you get to the end of verse 16, he says, we're servants of God. So that may seem like an oxymoron, a free servant, but it's not. Because in Christ, the Christian is free from the bondage of sin to live the life God's created us to live as servants of God. So Peter says, we use our freedom in Christ then to model good lives, to model good lives in a Matthew 5, 13 through 16 kind of way. We don't, we don't want there to be accusations against us that would not adorn the gospel. So we, we use our freedom in Christ to model good lives, and we use our freedom in Christ to show God's love, which is why Peter ends with four short commands in verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We honor everyone, especially our leaders. Honor the emperor, as if to say, Make sure to honor him. This is so important. We honor those who God has set up in government to lead us, to, to rule over us in that way. We care for the church. There's specific mention of caring for the brothers and sisters in Christ. And we fear God. Ultimately, don't fear the emperor. Don't fear governors. Don't fear men. Fear God. Fear God alone. And so here's where, and it's interesting, 
In 1 Peter 3, verse 14 through 17, look at this other passage. When he says later, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. So Peter's making very clear here, the governing authorities, including the emperor, don't hold absolute sway in our lives. Only God does that. The Christian ultimately fears God. So you put this whole passage together, we're free servants of God, free from sin to model good lives, to show God's love. We are inclined to submit to governing authorities. We want to submit to them because they're set up by God for our good. Yet, at the same time, in circumstances where the will of, the God, will of God and the will of the government are in direct opposition with one another, when the government is commanding or prescribing believers to sin, then the believer honors its leaders, but ultimately the believer obeys God. No matter what that means, because ultimately the believer fears God. So then, cultural applications, how does this affect the way we live, the way we think about religious liberty? Well, first, we believe religious liberty is not primarily a political issue. It is a gospel issue. Think about it. In light of First Peter, all of Scripture, freedom of religion is ultimately given by God, not just granted by government. We see this from the very beginning. When God creates man and woman, he gives them a choice of whether or not to obey or disobey him. When Jesus comes, he's calling people, he's inviting people to follow him, but he's giving people freedom to reject him. And this is important. Faith in its essence cannot be forced. That's why it's not right for any government to force faith upon anyone because God himself doesn't force faith upon anyone. Faith, in order to be faith, can't be forced. Someone has to choose to believe. Religion is a matter of voluntary choice, not involuntary coercion. And this applies to all religion, not just Christianity. All people in every country, every culture, made in the image of God, God himself has given them a right to choose how they respond to him. And we honor people by protecting that right. That's why religious liberty, not just a political issue, it's primarily a gospel issue. The gospel comes to us, right? As an invitation, choose Christ or reject Christ. And you have a choice whether or not to choose him or Muhammad or Buddha or to reject the very idea of God altogether. God's created us with that choice, which is why then, second application, we work for religious liberty for all, not just for Christians. We work for Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and everybody else to have religious liberty. So we, we, because we know that this is something that God has created us with, God gives men and women the freedom to pursue or deny him as they please. So we work for religious liberty knowing, follow this, knowing that religion exists to explore the questions of life, apply our conclusions to life, and government exists to protect that fundamental human privilege. That's why the first words in the Bill of Rights say, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Think about it. Why would that be the first thing in the Bill of Rights? And the answer is obvious. The freedom of religion is the foundation for every other freedom. If government can mandate what you believe, if government can deny you the opportunity to live within your beliefs, then where will its reach end? What would keep you, the government then from dictating what you say or write, what you hear, how you live? The founders of, our nation, of this nation concluded that if God himself doesn't violate the religious freedom of man, then government shouldn't either. Indeed, government doesn't exist for the establishment of religion, any religion, including Christianity. It doesn't exist for the elimination of religion, which is increasingly the trend in our culture where a secular state is increasingly becoming dominant that leaves no room for religion in the public square. No, government exists for the free exercise of religion. And that word exercise is key. Because it's not the language that's used in contemporary culture. People today talk about the freedom of worship, which is subtly but significantly different. Because people use that terminology instead of free exercise of religion, people referring to the freedom that men and women have to gather together in a church building or a synagogue or mosque or whatever place for corporate worship, maybe even in a home for family worship. But 
keeps things private. What that label, freedom of worship, fails to acknowledge is that those who gather for worship in private settings scatter to live out their beliefs in the public square. In other words, faith, by its very nature, can't be private. It's inevitably public. That's what Peter's saying. Your faith as free servants of God affects the way you live. Christians live, study, work, and play in every sector of society. We live out our convictions in every sector of society, which is what the free exercise of religion means. The freedom to worship, not just in episodic gatherings, but in everyday life. So then, what do we do if the government requires us to violate our sincerely held beliefs? Elaine photography, for example, and like it could happen to any one of us. Or for that matter, what if Hobby Lobby had gone 5-4 the other way? What do we do when the government mandates we do something that violates our faith in God's word as a school teacher or a lawyer or an accountant or provider of this good or that service? And the answer from 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, Matthew 22 is clear. We obey our government unless it requires us to disobey God. So we want to obey our government. We're inclined to obey our government. We honor our government and its leaders. We don't complain about our government. It's a good institution given to us by God, led by men and women created in the image of God, whom we honor and we respect, we pray for regularly. We obey our government, we honor its leaders, yet ultimately we fear our God and obey his word. Think about it this way. James Montgomery Boyce, famous former pastor up in Philadelphia, I outlined four options when it comes to how we approach government and God. One option is to say God alone is our authority and not to pay any attention to government. We've seen that's not what God and his word teaches. The second option would be to say that government alone is our authority, which we obviously know scripture's not teaching. Third, we might think that God and government are both authorities with government in the dominant position, which we've not seen in scripture. Instead, what we've seen very clearly is that God and government are both authorities, God ultimate, God in the dominant position. God and government authorities with God in the dominant position, which is exactly what First Peter is saying. Submit to governing rulers for the Lord's sake as you follow the Lord's will. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. But to God what is God's. Government may be worthy of your citizenship, but only God is worthy of your soul. So incline your heart, your life to submit to government in every way you can. Not except for that which would violate the word of God and your belief and your practice. Those four conclusions, four options lead to one conclusion that's all over scripture. We must obey God rather than men. The exact words of the early church when they were commanded not to preach the gospel by the government and they preached it. It's not the only time we see that in scripture. You think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. You think about Daniel in Daniel 6. You think about Hebrews 11, those who were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is the legacy of those who've gone before us. Brothers and sisters in Christ who in faced with the challenge, chose to obey God rather than men. So may the same be said in our day, that we obeyed our government unless our government compelled us to disobey our God. May May it be said of us that we did not put our hope ultimately in our government and the safety and security we find in it. May it be said of us that we put our hope ultimately in our God and the safety and security we find in him, that we stake our lives on obedience to him and anticipation of the day when we will stand before the true supreme court of the universe and we want to be found faithful on that day. We know this. In light of what we've gathered together, especially for tonight, religious liberty may be uh, increasingly jeopardized in our culture, but it's nowhere near reality in so many cultures around the world. And our Christian brothers and sisters live in those cultures. So what do we do? Fourth application, we speak and serve on behalf of the persecuted church around the world. We must speak 
and serve on behalf of the persecuted church around the world. We speak to God on their behalf. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. Is there room in your praying regularly for persecuted brothers and sisters? Are you doing that? Let that change starting this week. If you're not regularly praying for persecuted brothers and sisters, we speak to God on their behalf. We speak to our our government and other governments on their behalf. We work for their freedom. We speak and we serve. We give and go to our persecuted brothers and sisters. Why would we take up an offering like we did? So we can come alongside our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. We identify with our persecuted brothers and sisters. And here's what I mean by that. We identify with them. We have an enormous amount of freedom compared with many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Our our freedom may be eroding in some ways, but it's still enormous. So let's live like it. In the midst of an albeit eroding, but still enormous freedom, let's identify with our brothers and sisters by following Christ no matter what it costs in the culture around us. Let's refuse to keep our faith private. What are we saying to our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world when we're faced with small compromise and we shrink back in fear because of what it may cost us? May it not be so. Let's identify with them. Them oftentimes at much greater cost. Us oftentimes at much less cost. But let's identify with them by proclaiming the gospel to people around us and to people around the world. After all, and Jonathan hit on this, proclamation is the reason for persecution. Right? You think about it. We have brothers and sisters around the world, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Syria, North Sudan. If they're silent about their faith, they won't experience suffering. They'll suffer when they speak about their faith in Christ to others. They'll be persecuted when they proclaim the gospel to others. That's when it will cost them. So let's identify with them by proclaiming the gospel like them. By God's grace, we live in a land where we do have a certain amount of religious liberty. We can proclaim the gospel without fear of imprisonment or death. So far far be it from us with this incredible privilege that our brothers and sisters around the world would give anything to have, far be it from us to squander this liberty in our silence. Because we're afraid of what someone might think of us. We're afraid it would be an awkward conversation. God may it not be so. Let's identify with our persecuted brothers and sisters this week by proclaiming the gospel to people around us. And then, so follow this, and the people around the world. So think of places like Saudi Arabia or Syria or Somalia. So many places, people in places like, like don't have religious liberty. And as a result, may never have heard the gospel that we're about to talk, to talk about. Somebody's got to get the gospel to them. So the question is, will you be the somebody? Why be the somebody? Well, you and I go to the hard places to proclaim the gospel to them. You say, well, that takes a lot of risk, but somebody's got to take the risk. Why should our brothers and sisters around the world be the only ones taking risks while we sit back in the confines of comfortable churches enjoying religious liberty where we're free from risk all our lives? That makes no sense. In light of the reality that unreached peoples are dangerous to reach peoples, in light of the fact that church is struggling in these areas, let's identify with them by proclaiming the gospel alongside them, with them. And in the process, joyfully embracing suffering and persecution with them as one church, knowing together that Christ is our ultimate reward. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.